Hi folks, Wooden Boat Dan here. Just wanted to give you a heads up. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded several years ago. So some of the phone numbers, email addresses, website, links, and time-sensitive information are no longer valid. Please keep that in mind as you listen. If you'd like to contact me, my email address is woodenboatdan at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Hooked on Wooden Boats weekly podcast episode number 48, as in 048. I am your host, Dan Matson, aka Wooden Boat Dan, and this is the world's first podcast, fully 150% dedicated to celebrating the art, craft, history, tradition, romance, and other fun stuff about wooden vessels of all sizes, shapes, configurations, species of wood, colors, varnishes, ages, construction methods, drafts, beams, depth, power, sail, row, you name it, we talk about it here. (laughs) Trying to get a little dramatic with the intro there. Welcome to the show today, folks. It's good to be here again. I am sitting at my favorite recording spot, one of my favorite, about five minutes from my day job office. By the way, my day job is accounting. It's pretty exciting, actually. John Wellsford describes it as fighting ghosts on your computer all day. (laughs) Anyway, I'm at Bayview State Park on Padilla Bay. I'm looking out at Anacortes, Guaymas Island. Samish Island, Lummi Island, Cypress Island, uh, Mount Erie. So I'm just on the edge of the San Juan Islands here. It's a really cool spot. I am sitting out at a picnic bench with my little homemade recording setup here. Having a blast as usual. So anyway, back to welcoming you to the show. This is episode 48. We're coming up on a year here in about four weeks, which is pretty cool. I can't wait to publish episode 52 and have a one-year celebration. Today's featured segment is an interview with John Wellsford of Wellsford Design. John lives in and is from New Zealand, lives on the North Island, I believe it's in Hamilton, and I had the opportunity to spend some time with John about 10 days ago. Uh, during the Wooden Boat uh, Northwest School of Wooden Boat Building's 31st anniversary celebration. Did a really fun interview with John. Uh, John designs mainly small boats, but some bigger ones also. His most recent fun design is called the Scamp, which I've talked about and shown pictures of. So stick around for that interview. I think you're really going to like it. And you can probably hear that small plane in the background, but that's part of the ambiance. Last week on Thursday, my sons Josh and Mark joined me and we took a ferry over to Port Townsend and uh, dropped in on the SCAMP class at the Northwest Maritime Center. And from August 6th through the 17th, there's 10 people there that are building SCAMPs, which is an 11 foot, 11 inch uh, micro cruiser really cool boat so we went over there to kind of check it out see how the class is going i did some interviews um interviewed scott jones the boat shop manager at the maritime center and interviewed one of the students 
who is building a scamp there, Cliff Sell from Germany, and also did a, another short interview with John Wellsford, uh, mainly about the scamp and the class and so on, and asked him some questions that I hadn't uh, asked him for the interview I'm going to play today. So I'll be playing those interviews next week. But anyway, it was a really fun time. The kits for the scamp cost about two grand for the basic kit, which does the hole in the decks and all that. And they were, see, we were there on day four of their 10 or 12 day class. And so they had the, uh, they had the frames installed and they were getting ready to, uh, I think, install their garbard plank the next day. But anyway, it was really fun to see that. I've definitely got scamp fever. I would love to build one of those boats maybe next year. Rumor has it they may have another scamp class in March at Port Townsend. And for sure, they're going to have one a year from now in August. So, uh, fun stuff. I figured by the time you get all done with the boat, if you do the work yourself, you're going to be into it probably five or six grand by the time you buy or make spars and sails and get your hardwood kit and pay for your epoxy and buy a trailer and all that stuff. But, wow, what an awesome boat to have when you're all done. Pretty fun stuff. I would appreciate it if you would connect with me through email. Dan at hookedonwoodenboats.com is a good place to start. You can subscribe to my e-news list by going to hookedonwoodenboats.com forward slash subscribe. You can leave comments on my website, on my blog posts. You can connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest for Wooden Boat Dan. Uh, if you search for Wooden Boat Dan, you'll find me there. And my voicemail feedback hotline, 424-261-2360. Also, if you're listening to this on your computer, you can also subscribe to the podcast and have it automatically show up on your smartphone, your iPad, or even on your computer through an RSS feed. You can do that on iTunes. If you go to the podcast section and look for my site, you can subscribe there. Or you can subscribe through Apple's new software called Podcasts, plural. Anyway, there's a bunch of ways to do it. So please subscribe if you haven't already done that. This week, I worked on my canoe some more. I'm putting a lot of time into the decks, uh, much more than I really had planned on. <laughs> I think I've got it like six or seven hours into these two little decks. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But basically, I'm using a purple heart for a splash guard and then trimming the outsides of the decks with some purple heart. And it's very minute, fine woodworking stuff. I think it's going to look pretty cool when I'm done, but it's taken a lot of time. As soon as I finish that, then I'll be able to get my two coats of epoxy on the whole boat and then start doing my varnishing and uh, finishing the... I think I'm going to use the boat sauce instead of varnish to finish the gunnels and the decks on my boat. So I'm going to start something new today, and I'll plan on doing it most weeks. Not Maybe not every week, but I thought I'd give a wooden boat tip of the week. This particular uh, tip has to do with boat building and has to do with a lesson that I have a hard time learning, and that is, the tip is to take time to do something right the first time 
because you'll save time in the long run. So, you know, as you're building a boat, there's lots of tedious stuff to do. And my tendency is I want to get the boat done. I want to get it in the water. I want to use it. I want it to look pretty. And so I'm constantly kind of pressuring myself to work a little quicker on the boat and do things a little quicker than I really should. Uh, so case in point, when I went to cut the two decks for my canoe out of uh, Akumi plywood, I traced the shapes onto the, um, onto the plywood and then I cut them out and then instead of really taking the time to make sure that they fit exactly where I wanted them to go on top of the decks, which is right where the line of the Akumi plywood comes through the gunnels, all the way to the stem and the stern, I kind of rushed it and so I didn't have a, uh, I didn't cover that quarter inch piece of plywood completely that comes up through my gunnels. So, I rushed it. <laughs> so now I've got the gunnels lamin or the uh, decks laminated on the boat. Now I'm going to trim the outside of the decks with some purple heart. Well, uh, instead of being able to use just a piece of quarter inch purple heart that I cut on my saw, I have to start with a piece of purple heart that's basically going to be 5 sixteenths and tapering down to about 3 sixteenths over an 18 inch span which makes it much more difficult to cut and trim and it's a very small piece of wood so you have to go through a lot of hoops to do that so anyway bottom line is if I had take more time in cutting out my decks I would have saved quite a bit of time probably a couple hours in getting these little trim pieces that fit around the outside of my decks to fit and look really good. So that's the tip of the week. Take time to do it right the first time because it'll save you time in the long run. So if you have some experience with that, uh, let me know. I'd like to hear about it. This week we have a new subscriber, Barbara Johnson. Barbara, welcome to the subscription list and the show. It's great to have you on board. And I hope more of you out there will subscribe to the podcast and to the e-news list. This is actually a subscription to the e-news list that I'm talking about. I have an email from Dan Neid that I would like to read under the category of listener feedback. And Dan is in the Great Lakes area. And here's what he has to say. Dan, first off, I would like to say that I really enjoy your podcast, even though I don't own a wooden boat or any boat, nor have I ever owned a boat. <laughs> Having said that, I am currently considering the purchase of a wooden boat. It's a 1960s Carver runabout that has been sitting at a boat dealership exposed to the elements with no protection for over a year. The inside of the boat is trashed, all the plywood cabinetry is delaminating, etc., However, all the parts made out of mahogany seem solid. Thankfully, this seems to include the hull. If I can get it for a good price, I think resurrecting it will make a fun slash infuriating project. The potential for it to again be something good is definitely there. 
Listening to your podcast and hearing stories from the interviews was in no small part the catalyst that got me looking for a wooden boat, for a wooden boat. Along with the prerequisite permission from my wife, now that I may have actually found a boat. And rest assured, if I end up buying the boat and it turns out to be nothing more than an inexpensive or an inexpensive bonfire on a trailer, I hold your podcast at no fault whatsoever. Now, as to the point of this message, there will be a wooden boat show in Toledo, Ohio on August 25th, 26th. I thought you could add it to your event list, which I have done that. Thanks, Dan, for that information. Uh, he says, I realize you're in the Pacific Northwest. You're heavily, your podcast heavily focused on that region. only makes sense. Well, he's, he's basically saying there, is it okay to put something on from Ohio? And it's like, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd like to put stuff from all over the world. This happens that I live in the Pacific Northwest, which is very rich with wooden boat activity and stuff. But I do want to branch out and get involved in other areas of the U.S. and around the world perhaps through Skype. Okay, and then he says at the end here again, Dan, I really enjoy the podcast. Look forward to many more. Dan Need, N-I-E-D. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, Dan, but I appreciate your feedback, and best of luck. Let me know if you actually purchase that boat and how it goes. I'd like to stay uh, apprised of your progress on that. Well, let's see here. We're going to move on now to upcoming events. It's September 1st the 4th, the Small Craft Skills Academy in Port Townsend. Uh, September 7th through 9th, the Wooden uh, Boat Festival in Port Townsend, Washington, where I will be presenting on September 9th at 9.45 in the morning in the Discovery Room of the Red Building at the Northwest Maritime Center. I'd love it if you'd look me up. Things kind of slow down in the winter, so that's all I've got on my list right now. And next, we're going to move on to the interview with John Wellsford. I hope you enjoy this. I had an absolute blast doing it. John's a really fun guy. So take it away, John. It is August 4th, 2012, and I am sitting with John Wellsford. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's... Uh, John and I just met today for the first time uh, at the 31st anniversary of the Northwest School of Wooden Boat Building in Port Hadlock, Washington. That's a mouthful. And uh, John is here from New Zealand. John's a boat designer, among other things. And uh, so, John, uh, tell me, are, did you grow up in New Zealand? Yeah, I grew up in New Zealand. I was born in the central North Island town of Tamaranui which is a tiny little city, about 10,000-12,000 people. And at those days, its major um, claim to fame was it was the mid-voyage or mid-journey stop on the express train from Wellington to Auckland. Oh, really? Mm. And that was its real, really its only claim to fame at that time. Yeah, and that's on the North Island. Mm -hmm. New Zealand is basically comprised of two islands. Two major islands two major and several islands. smaller ones, yeah. Yeah, right, okay. So that's where you grew up. And when did you first get into boating, John? Well, it's in the blood somewhat. The uh, My dad did our family history running back quite a few generations. There's been a boat builder of some kind in the family every generation as far back as he could find. And the Denny Shipbuilding Company, for example was one of the major builders of civilian 
uh, freight and passenger ships in the UK on the Clyde in Scotland mm -hmm. until shortly after the war. And uh, the, the Denny were part of our family. That's our family line. Oh, okay. So, and they had the first civilian ship tow testing facility ever. So, so tow testing. Yep. Okay. Test tank. Oh, tow test tank. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, it's in the background. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I used to stay. Although my father was a farmer okay. and not at all interested in boats, um, mm -hmm. I'd stay with my grandparents every holidays and he was very much into boats he did the books all the paperwork for a one-man boat building company and the chap who ran that was illiterate couldn't read or write but brain dad did all the number work when they were doing lofting and he did all the accounts for him oh really so I got to spend from about seven years on, every holidays, at Philip Lang Boat Builders. And I learnt to whittle, and I learnt to plank, and I learnt to tail out machinery. And that's been a large part of my, my background, is, is working with heavy woodworking machinery. And I still have about a half-time business repairing, maintaining, setting up um, production-type woodworking machinery. Mm -hmm. All the way from the little bandsaws that we use here, at the um, boat building school right through to high production sawmills and I've been a sawmill manager I've been a supplier of machinery and it was supplying that machinery that brought me into this area for the first time mm -hmm. is that the company used to send me generally into Vancouver and they had technology agreements or design sharing agreements with several manufacturers between Vancouver and LA so I would spend two weeks driving from one to another of those, maintaining those relationships, looking at the machinery, seeing where the developments were going, um, translating those into how they fit the, my employer's own engineering company in terms of machinery and capabilities and working out where our customer base would fit with them. Mm -hmm. I see. Okay. So let's back up to when you were a kid, John. Uh, so you would go spend time with your grandparents on the holiday. Your granddad was involved in a, um, a boat shop there, pretty involved. So you spent quite a bit of time there. What kind of boats were they building in those days, John? Heavy launches and motor sailors, 50-50 motor sailors. Really? So really heavy yachts with big motors, um, wheelhouses, and a smaller rig. So they were luxury yachts for people, or or what were they used for? The launches were generally work boats. Okay. Um, these were barge tugs. Uh, okay, barge tugs. Yeah. Okay. So these were all traditional Carvel planked boats, Carvel. plank on frame yep. style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although there were several cold molded ones. Cold molded. Okay. Yeah, and I actually got involved in those because you need a lot more hands. Yeah. Right? So you. Slinging the, slinging the glue-coated plank up and getting it all clamped and screwed into place before the stuff started to tack off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, at that stage, I was about 10 or 11, and I was beginning to be of some use around the place. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. So when did you build your first boat? Um, nine years old. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was a sheet of corrugated roofing iron bent up at the ends, piece of firewood in each end for a stem and a stem, and a couple of pieces of firewood across the middle to keep the middle spread out 
some bitumen, some tar scraped off the road on a hot day to cork it, <laughs> and bits of sacking and tar over the over the nail holes. And that was my first boat. Really, and I love it. The first of many, in fact. I've yeah, a whole lot of those. You still have that boat, John? <laughs> oh, no. Wow. Okay, so that was your that was metal. That was a metal boat. Yeah. Yeah. So how about what was your first wood boat? Maybe remember. Um, the first wood boat. I'd been racing motorcycles. Oh, really? Quite seriously. When um, you were a youth. Between 15 and 25, 26 years old. Yeah. Um, I was married, I was racing motorcycles, I was working at a reasonably senior level in a company, and their policy was um, no hazardous sports above a certain level of the management. Oh. Now, the fact that the managing director just driving down the road would have been a hazardous sport oh, on his own, because he wrote off at least one car a year. Didn't matter, he was the boss. Mm-hmm. So he came to me and said, You can have a promotion because we'd like you to become this next level, or you can carry on racing motorcycles and we'll support you in that. That's not a problem. So it's your choice, don't feel pressured. So I went home to my then wife and said, This is what's happened. And we'd lost two friends that year in the sport. Really? One died on the Isle of Man, one died in a race in England and um, we were feeling a bit uncomfortable about that yeah and um, I'd had a couple of falls but no real injuries and um, she said okay what are we going to do so we sat down and she knew I liked boats but we sat down and we wrote down each one of us the sports that we really liked and we prioritised those and we matched them up and the boating came out at the top so the local boating club were building these really, really nice 21-foot light displacement cabin yachts. They were racing them as a class, and they were cruising them as a group. Mm-hmm. They had a, a workshop where you went down to the workshop, you helped the previous guy build their hull, and they take the bare hull home. And then the next person along would help yourself build your hull, Oh. And you take your hull along. So you were never cold, right? You went in, you knew what you were doing once you got to your boat because you'd helped the previous guy. Oh, nice. And um, so we built one of those. Yeah. Is that a sloop? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Used a Flying Dutchman wreck. Okay. I don't know what that you, is, but... Yeah, Flying Dutchman. Most most older competitive sailors would know the size. It's about a 200 square foot rig with wow. a bendy three-quarter, um, modern bendy three-quarter sloop mm-hmm. on it. So we built one of those. We lived in Dunedin at the time, and it took three years to put our first hundred nights up on board, which is a lot. Yeah. That's, that's a month a year actually living on the boat. And we, we cruised most of the bigger South Island lakes and all the bigger harbours. Um, and then we parted, she and I. Mm-hmm. And um, shortly after that, one of my friends said to me, hey, I'm going to build this boat, and he dragged a set of plans out for something that seemed to me to be totally unsuited to his use. And having a big mouth and strong opinions about most things, said, what a waste of time. You should be doing this, this, and this. And he told me, now, if you design the boat, 
I'll build it, and if it works the way you say it will, you can have that Stanley 55 moulding plane that you've been eyeing up in my workshop. I've still got that Stanley 55 moulding plane. Oh, my goodness. And all its knives in the original box. Oh, my So it's probably worth five or $6,000 these days. Wow. But in those days, it was a curiosity. Yeah. And I'd, I'd been dribbling over it for ages. Now, what's a moulding plane, John? If you have a look behind you at that door, you'll see that there's a whole lot of very um, sophisticated shaped pieces of wood in it. Right. A moulding plane will do that. Instead of having to use a router or a shaper or a moulder, a full house moulder, you can do that with a hand plane. And a moulding plane carries a range of different blades in different places along with depth gauges and all sorts of fancy little devices in it that allow you to make those mouldings part at a time. So you can produce picture frame mouldings or you can round off the edge of lumber for framing your house with a moulding plane. Okay. It's absolutely no use these days because you go down to the hardware store and you spend $30 and you come home with the right router bit. (laughs) (laughs) But they're a lovely tool. Yeah. And now I've got that one. So your friend gave it to you for helping with this boat. The boat that I drew up for him worked exactly as advertised. So you drew up the plans for the boat. Okay. Yep. Helped him build it, and away it went. So how did, was that your first design, so to speak, John? Yes. It was? Yep. And from there, someone else came along and said, Hey, I really like Dick's boat, but I want it bigger. Oh, okay. Give us a few dollars, and I'll draw it for you. So I did that, and it grew, and it grew. So how did you draw? How did you know how to do that, John? I'd been reading up a lot to see why the other guys' boats went faster than mine. Yeah, and at that stage of my learning, everything seemed to be very black and white. Mm-hmm. Right, and like as we get older, we learn more about things. There's more shades of grey all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's about where I'm at. There's an awful lot of shades of grey. <laughs> um, but at that time, I, I had a lot of confidence. The first one was a raging success. It did exactly what I wanted it to. What kind of boat was it? It was a little pram dinghy, 11 feet long. Um, it was a direct ancestor of the scamp. Oh. And in a way, um, it was actually for duck hunting. But, okay. He wanted to go out in the swamps. He wanted to be able to roof rack it, go out in the swamps with two guys and a dog and push through all the grass and rubbish and yet it still had to cope with reasonably open water in the rivers. And small outboard motor, mm-hmm. yep. big load carrying capacity, highly, very high stability, Yeah, all that. How much did that boat weigh? You know? Oh, around 80 or 90 pounds. Yeah. It was quite okay. light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that a planked boat then? No, it was all plywood. Oh, it was, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was your first design, that one, and then somebody else came along and... Tell me about that then. Yeah, well, that was to be a traditional clinker-built dinghy. Oh. Right? But it was to be done in glued plywood Mm -hmm. because it had to live on a trailer in a carport and solid wood, you know, it shrinks up. Yeah. The thing always leaks. Yeah. You've got really big problems with splitting of planks and so on. Yeah. So um, it was a glued plywood boat that looked very traditional. So there was that. And by then I was buying Wooden Boat magazine. I started about issue number eight, I think. Okay. Yeah. And away it went. And yeah. every time I did something, 
it went that all that knowledge went into the bank and the bank balance got bigger in terms of my knowledge and I studied more on it I read all the books I experimented with my own boats because I built a boat a year for close to 25 years really yeah I'm, I'm one short of one a year <laughs> wow. some of them were pretty small yeah and some of them were reasonably big yeah but every one of them has been a, a set of experiments in its own way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um, yeah recently my last one was the smallest boat I built my little gaff sloop that I sail has five foot six and a quarter inches between the rudder post where the tiller comes out Mm -hmm. and the back of the cabin and because it's a trailer boat I need to keep a dinghy in there that's the only place I can put it when I'm towing the boat on the trailer so I've got a five foot six inch long dinghy oh really and it's yeah it's so so ridiculous it's cute and that goes on what boat? Um, I've got a boat called May which is a near replica of an 1860s South Coast English workboat Now, my friend Bruce bought the boat. Bruce was my boss at university when I was teaching marine design, which is a whole other story hmm. as to how that came about. But I taught marine and automotive transport design at Massey University in Auckland part-time for a couple of years. And that was a wonderful experience. And that that formalised a lot of my knowledge. Hmm. I knew what I'd do in any given situation with a design problem but quite often, if I'd never had to explain why I would do that. When I was teaching, I had to be able to explain why. So it broadened my knowledge a lot and it formalised my knowledge. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't just sit and say, oh, you just do that. But unless you could say why you do that, if they were faced with a slightly different problem, they wouldn't know the process. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn how to teach process, design process. Were, were a lot of your designs, John, where you would start with a drawing on paper and then you would loft it out and see what it looked like and study the lines that way, or how did you...? When I first started, I drew a picture of what I thought would work, and then I drew a construction drawing from that. Mm. Today, after 30-odd years in it, what I do is I sit down and I'll write a brief which will give me a performance envelope. Now, performance, first of all, is not just speed. Performance, for me, is suitability for purpose. So you see a little scamp out there. It has a particular purpose, Mm -hmm. and it performs very well to that purpose. It's not the fastest racer you've ever seen, but it's in terms of being a high-performance boat, it is a very high-performance boat because it fits its purpose so well. Yeah. So I write out the purpose. Now, within that purpose, there will be the builder's resources, the builder's budget. Mm. Now, resources are space, materials, skills, tools availability, time availability. All of those things go in with where he's going to sail it because there are major climatic and environmental differences in people's different sailing grounds. Mm. That affects design. Um, how often he's going to sail it, how far he's going to go in it, um, how many people it's got to carry. Right. So we have all of the actual usage things. We have all of the things that affect the construction of it. We have all of the things that affect the ownership of it. So all of those go into the brief. 
and they make up a parcel. From that brief, I then work out a series of numerical models. Okay, all the statistics, prismatic coefficient, displacement to length coefficient, um, displacement to sail area, surface area to sail area, all of these things, along with... Which are all the mathematical, how many, quantifiable... Yep. How many bunks, how, many, how much headroom, and all of those things. So the ergonomics, the size, the numerical model of the hydrodynamics and the rig all go in together, all into this big pot. Mm-hmm. And then from that, at every stage, I draw the, draw the pretty picture, I do a cross-section, I measure it, and I know what the prismatic coefficient is going to be. That's a measure of the fullness of the ends. So I multiply the cross-sectional area by the waterline length by the prismatic coefficient, and that tells me if I'm in the ballpark on the displacement, mm. and so on. So those numbers control the design drawing process all the way through until I get to the point where I'm, I'm drawing the nice little detail work. I see. Yeah. So my design process has become much more formal. Now, one of the things that is necessary, someone will come and say, I want, in, in one case, there was a mini transat racer. I raced single-handed from France to the Caribbean every second year, these boats. They are 6.5 metres long by 3 metres wide. They carry huge rigs, absolutely massive rigs, and they're single-handed. They have swinging keels and dagger boards, and they are serious little races. 250-mile-a-day races, single-handed. Oh, my goodness. On a 21-footer. Yeah? Very high-performance boats. So I was able to develop the mathematical model, which included how it would behave in the sea states that prevail in the Bay of Biscay and in the trade winds. So I was able to model manually, because I don't use a computer for this, how the boat would behave in those waves to a certain extent. The pitching rate. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the, all this sort of stuff. And then draw the boat. Mm-hmm. And the boat performed as designed. Now, unless you use those mathematical models, you cannot guarantee how the boat's going to perform. Mm-hmm. And if your customer needs a certain type of performance then you must use that mathematical model in order to determine whether or not the shape that you're drawing is going to work for that customer. Mm-hmm. So I have a customer, for example, who wants a very long-range motor launch. We're talking 4,000 miles per fill on a boat of about 44 feet. Wow. Okay. He wants to go from here. He's a local guy here. Down the coast to the... In Port Townsend? Yep. Uh-huh. Down, down the coast to the Panama, through the Panama, across the Caribbean, across the Gulf of Mexico, up into the um, coast, intracoastal waterway, through Florida, all the way up to Boston, then across the Atlantic, okay, Iceland, Greenland... <laughs> and then into the Mediterranean and then just to really balls things up he wants to go through the European Canal System which has limits on draft height and width all the way up into the um, Baltic Sea and to, up into Finland to the Orland Islands 
Okay. And then all the way home again. Now, where is he going to fill up? Every step of the way, there are constraints that the environment put on the boat, such as the French canals. The width isn't a problem because you're allowed to go up to 14 feet. The depth is a problem, and the draft above water is a problem because they only have a 3.4 metre bridge clearance. Mm. Mm -hmm. And they have a 1.2 metre draft requirement. So I've got to fit the boat that will do all of these other things through that little square box. (laughs) Wow. So I have to sit down and work out the mathematics behind it. I also need to be able to do around about 10 nautical miles per gallon at 7 knots. Otherwise we can't carry enough fuel to get the 4,000 mile range. Yeah. Because in a 43 foot boat you can only carry about 2 tonnes of fuel. So to get 4,000 miles out, that's the fuel requirement. Mm. So I have to design a hull that will do that. I have to select a motor that will do that. And there aren't many. Yeah. That's a rarity. So you're working on that project now, John? Mm. Yeah. Wow. How long will that take you to do that? With the other things that I do, probably 12 months. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Wow. So you're going to design that, and then uh, is this guy going to build it himself? or? Um, Mostly, yeah. He's got some help organized. Yeah. Big project. Yeah, and you don't use a computer to do this stuff. I use a computer to do a lot of the modeling. So I'll draw a picture and I'll take all the numbers off it and I'll run it. Mm. But I don't use the computer to draw itself. Two two things. The computer drawing is slow. Yeah. Um, Once you've got a design, to alter it is very quick. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to alter it. Mm-hmm. Because I have this numeric, this method of checking against the numbers all the way, my drawings tend to be very close to what I want, mm-hmm. so I don't have to change them around a lot. I see. Yeah, and I like drawing. Mm-hmm. I hate drawing things on a computer. It doesn't feel. Yeah. It's not a not a, a good conduit between my head. It's not the same and as paper. It. Yeah. So I yeah. like drawing. So I yeah. I'll be there with the drawing board. I've got a computerized planimeter that measures areas. Okay. And that's a large part of the process, and I changed the design process to suit that, mm. take advantage of it. Yeah. So, and, and you can buy those, they're about 1200 bucks, but you can buy them at the surveyor's supplies. Oh. People who supply all the, all the people who do um, geo and surveying type work, mm-hmm. uh, they use them. Mm-hmm. So that's where mine came from. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can just literally look through the lens and run around a drawing and hit the button and it tells you how much area there is and because I'm drawing in metric and this is a raw subject for some people yeah but one liter is one kilogram mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a thousand liters is a ton and if I want to scale up and down it's just add or subtract a zero yeah it's a little easier than our system I'm, I'm too dumb to work in, in feet 36 
two and one eighth inches, right? Yeah, forget that. I mean, I've got millimeters, and they, ten of those, you put a zero on, that's centimeters. You put a zero on, that's meters. Yeah. And this is another yeah, one, I, and that's a kilometer. It makes a lot more sense, John. And, and the conversion between lineal and volume is, is the same, you know? Yeah. Volume and weight is the same. One kilogram, that's ten. That's 100 by 100 by 100, is a kilogram is... is, is yeah, it makes life very easy. Yeah, I don't know why we could never get that figured out here. <laughs> it used to be that I'd sell um, a set of metric plans into America, and about every third one would, would contact me and bitch about it. <laughs> now, I don't get any of them bitching about it anymore because Americans are much more comfortable with metrics than they used to be. Yeah. I mean, you can t- Americans can count their change, so they're used to dealing in decimals. Yeah. Once you point that out, they sort of go, oh, yeah. And the other thing that I say, if somebody does grumble, I say, well, look, the Canucks converted years ago, and if they can do it, Americans should be at least that smart. <laughs> My end of argument. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing is that if it's a problem, I just send them a metric ruler and say, don't convert anything, just use the metric ruler. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of ten, I get a message back a few weeks later saying, why didn't anybody tell me it was so easy? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I I understand that. <laughs> so yeah, so the design process starts with a bundle, starts with the interview with the customer, mm-hmm. and that can be quite extensive, and it can touch on things that the customer may not have even thought of, mm-hmm. because I need to get a feel for those resources. Once I've got that, then. It all boils down into a whole string of numbers, a couple of sheets of numbers, mm. and then from that the drawing grows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are most of your designs smaller boats, John, or not? I'm best known for the smaller ones. Yeah. But there's been a number of bigger ones, which are one-offs, and as one-offs, that's a relationship between me and the customer. Mm-hmm. And we don't publicise it any further unless the customer wants to. Oh, I see. And in most cases, they don't. Oh, this is mine. They say, yeah, and I'll keep it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, are most of your designs one-offs, John, these days, or um, you do kind I of a combination to, of public, you know, publicly available design boats? I prefer to design for my range because if I go to a customer who's doing, say, a 40-footer, and I say, it's going to cost you $8,000 for this work. They sort of take a big, deep breath and say, no, thank you. And we didn't realise that that you were wanting to buy a Rolls-Royce next year. (laughs) You're making way too much money, John. (laughs) And uh, so what I do is I say to them, well, hey... This boat would actually be a nice addition to my range of designs. So how about we go halves? You pay me $4,000 and I will retain the right to market those plans as part of my plans range. And you get to name the design. You'll get your name in there in the blurb about it so that people will know that you've got the first one and that you've got the ball rolling on this design. But there will be times when I want to do things certain ways which fit the larger customer base, and we just need to negotiate around those. Mm-hmm. So that's about how I'm working now. I don't do much one-off. Okay. And I don't have the time. It's very labor-intensive. Yeah, yeah. And because I'm running a small business, in fact, I run two because I do the machinery servicing as well. Yeah. Um, 
So I'm running a small business. Which is which your takes, boat design business. Which takes quite a lot of time. Yeah. Every set of plans that goes out has to be copied, has to be folded up, right? The money has to be banked. The books have to be done. Oh, yeah. The floor has to be swept. And at the end of it all, yeah. if I'm lucky, I'll get an hour a day at the drawing board. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's difficult. Right. Mm. So that's one of your business. Your other business is maintaining this machinery? Yeah. Okay. And that's uh, that's uh, log cutting equipment. Or? No, mostly joinery and cabinet making shops. Okay. But for for example, one of our local jails has got three woodworking shops where they train the prisoners. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I get to go there every couple of months and wait for an hour and a half while they process me to get me in, mm-hmm. and an hour and a half to, and it's all on the on the charge out. Yeah, and then I go through and I'll service all the machinery I change all the blades change all the saw blades um, check everything's going okay do all I the adjustments see. and then I'll come back out with a, a bucket load of sharpening for the company that I contract to mm-hmm. so I contract to a saw filing shop that also sells woodworking machinery and how it happened was they knew my background in that industry and I go through a heap of bandsaw blades so I was in there buying my usual batch of bandsaw blades and Andrew there said, we've got a customer just down the road who's got a big saw system, panel cutting system, which is making some really strange noises and the finish has gone all to pop. Mm-hmm. Could you go and have a look at it? Because their normal technician was completely at sea on it. Yeah. And um, I went down there, put the stethoscope on it and sure enough it was all bearings. Mm. So pulled it all apart. The, the real cause of it was that they had a triple belt drive system. You're supposed to buy those as a matched set, and they'd replaced a single one. Oh. Okay. And it was a tiny, tiny fraction smaller than the other two. So there's a heap of vibration, and it was slipping. And it Whereas the bearings messed, messed up the bearings. Yeah. 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 So... Pulled it all to pieces, replaced all the bearings, went and got the match set, gave them the big lecture, don't put a single one on, make sure you buy the set. Yeah. Even if only one's looking tired, buy a set. Okay? Yeah. And give us a shout in six months, and I'll come and do the maintenance on it. Mm-hmm. So it's grown from there, yeah. from one job a week up to maybe two, two and a half days a week. Oh, wow. I have an um, engineer toolmaker friend who's retired, and I pulled him into it, mm-hmm. and he comes along with me on the jobs that need two people, and he's looking after the business while I'm away. Cool. Now, he's not good with customers. Mm. He, he finds it very difficult to tolerate someone who's not maintained their machine. He'll go in and rip great strips off them, you know. <laughs> and sometimes now they're not, not, not the right thing to do. Yeah. But I manage that side of it. Yeah. I manage the billing. Um, I've, I only have to bill the saw filing shop. So I write all the bills out, who it was, what we did, how many hours, total at the bottom. And I'm the tax entity as well, so I run the tax books. Yeah. And uh, I pay my friend, and um, it's working really well. Cool. Very good. So at the moment, it would be very difficult to make a living from small boat design. Yeah. I'm selling maybe two-thirds today in terms of numbers of what I was five years ago. Really? Mm -hmm. Why is that, John? Because the world's economy is falling on its butt. Yeah. And people aren't spending money 
um, on recreation. This is a um, you have a choice as to whether or not to spend money on on boats. Yeah, and people are choosing to leave their money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if there is a growth area in boating generally, it's in the small adventure cruising boats, the boats that go on the raids, the boats that are used for coastal cruising, extended day sailing. And it's boats like my Navigator, like Scamp. And if you look at all the boats out here today, there's a fairly traditional flavour, but a lot of them are capable of going much further than just the round the bay dinghy. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So and that's the growth area in, in boating mm-hmm. worldwide. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a little more affordable too, and mm-hmm. you don't have to have moorage and all that stuff, right? Yeah, well, I was explaining to Katie next door here. She was telling me she doesn't have a partner. I said, you do have a partner. You are partnered really solidly. You've got a 28-foot yacht. That's your partner. She's going to soak up all of your spare time, all of your money, just like a husband would. (laughs) (laughs) And she laughed. And and then she thought about it and she says, you're right. Yeah. You'll probably get a lot less argument and a lot more fun. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, funny. Yeah. So that level of commitment isn't required for the smaller boats. Mm -hmm. You can keep them in the garage. You can build them in the garage. You can keep them in the garage. You can keep them under a tarp. You can tow them. Right. If you own a scamp, for example, and you wanted to sail in the pocket cruiser convention on Lake Havasu, you can do that. Mm -hmm. You can't do it with Katie's 28-footer. Yeah, right. Right, you can only sail with that within range of her mooring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So it offers a whole different range of experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that leads on to another one, is that I firmly believe that building your own boat is a different hobby to sailing your boat. Mm. Right, And I've got people who have built six or seven and they come home at night time from a, a job which I describe as fighting ghosts. You're sitting behind a desk with no real connection with what's actually happening in the world. Right? You're dealing with figures, you're dealing with images, you're dealing with cranky customers. And this How did you know what I did, John? And this isn't real. <laughs> this is fighting ghosts, yeah? Yeah. And people who fight ghosts come home all charged up with adrenaline and stress. And if they can sit down for an hour after dinner every night and they can shape a piece of wood and they can sand it all and get it all nice and get it fitting and get it glued into place and stand back and see that this thing that they're creating has moved another step that's a wonderful remedy for the stress oh, yeah. of, of the fighting ghosts jobs Yeah. Mm-hmm. so that's a hobby on its own yeah. and it's very strongly connected to using a boat because it's generally the wanting to use the boat that drove that hobby in the first place that's created it but so many people when the workshop is empty right? it's the empty workshop syndrome and you've heard that about kids right <laughs> but you get grandkids if you're lucky Yeah, yeah. so you've got the empty workshop syndrome and six months later they're ringing me up and saying hey I'm really enjoying sailing the boat what am I going to build next yeah yeah, I, I can relate to that. It's mm-hmm. it's building the boat is totally different than using it. Yeah. Uh, for me, I think I enjoy the building probably more than the using. Mm-hmm. I enjoy both, but the building is. Yep. 
it's just a creative process for us ghost fighters that sit at a desk all day. <laughs> You're stuck with that now. You're going to use that. I like that. I like that, John. Mm. I never knew what to call my occupation of accounting, but I think ghost fighting describes it pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so tell me, John, how many designs do you have available for sale these days? About 35. 35 designs. And yeah. what are this, what's the size range on that? Um, well, the biggest one's 25 feet. Yeah. And the little one's, the littlest one's 6 foot 6. Mm-hmm. And there's a big concentration in the area between about 14 and 18 feet. Okay. So these are, uh, so in that range, you've got trailer, trailer, bro. Trailerable boats. Only two are not. Okay, only two are not. And uh, boats that are easy uh, to use and maintain and uh, not expensive to build, not complicated designs. That's right. Well, yeah. at the top end, we've got things like Sundowner, which is 21 and a half feet, but that's designed as a Cape Horn capable cruising yacht. Really? Yep. 21 and a half feet. Yep. This is a big boat. She's nine foot six wide. Oh my goodness! And she's got standing headroom, even for someone like yourself. Wow! Right, and there's room to carry over a ton of supplies. But that's your limitation. Yeah. Right. You get the boat strong enough, that's fine. But if you're going to take a hundred days from New Zealand to the Falklands, you want to be carrying 125 days worth of food, water, toilet paper, toothpaste, mm. diesel fuel. Methylated spirits with which to start your cooker, mm-hmm. kerosene, all of the consumables, everybody. You yeah. know, you need 10 pounds per day. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. People look at it and they say, well, I'm only going to drink two pounds of water a day and I only need a pound of food a day, so three pounds a day is fine. You don't want to run out of toilet paper. <laughs> you know, you probably need. 25 grams of toilet paper a day you need a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that and a little bit and it adds up to 10 pounds a day yeah that's comfortable mm-hmm. but 100 days that's a thousand pounds yeah you're getting 1250 pounds when you get out to the 125 days mm-hmm. and it's a fairly decent sized boat that will carry that sort of weight in variable load because you start off with it, your takeoff oh. weight is at one end of that scale, and when you get to the other end of that scale and it's empty, the thing has got to still be stable. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah. the amount of stores that you can carry, there is a formula for the proportion of the dry loaded weight, or the dry weight of the ship. Okay? The variable load can't be more than about 25% of the total loaded displacement. I see. Yeah. So you take off at one and you finish up at three quarters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any, any more variation than that, you run into a problem. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. So what's your most popular design, would you say, John? Um, well, I used to think that it was my 15-foot navigator design. But in fact, Houdini, 13-foot-9, and the little tender behind, both have sold more. Really? But they're both up in the six, seven hundred range. Wow, is that right? Mm. Yeah. Now, you just sell the plans. You don't sell kits or anything like that. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And I have approved builders. Oh, oh, yeah. oh you do? I didn't know that. Um, well, we're just talking to Marty Loken. Okay. Marty, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, David Graybeal, 
down in Portland. Okay. Okay. Harbour Woodworks down there is one of mine. Oh. Um, so Marty and I are looking at doing the same thing. Oh. Because cool. I get inquiries. Who can build this for me? Oh yeah. Well, go and see this man. Mm-hmm. And if I know the people and I know what they do, then I'm comfortable to do that. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah I've got Mike Moniz over there and and on Lake Eufaula in Oklahoma. He's pumping them out as hard as he can go. Um, I've got two guys in England, one in Australia. Mm-hmm. And I like to visit them now and again. Yeah, very cool. So uh, I wanted to touch on the SCAMP project here, John, for a few minutes. Uh, so tell me how that came about. Okay, I've, got a, I've been de- talking to by email with Josh since he was a couple of A4 sheets. Right, so I've been a part. Now that's of, Josh Colvin of Small Craft Advisor Magazine. That's the man. Yep. So I've been a part of his project, if you like, for a long time now. And he came to me and said, "Hey, I want a little cruiser, and I want it to be ten feet long, and I want to be able to sleep on board it, and I want it safe enough and comfortable enough to sail it around coastal waters around here." And I went and looked at it, and I puzzled, and I scratched, and and I went back and says it needs to be bigger than ten feet. <laughs> so we went out to about ten foot nine, and I drew up a little boat. And he says, "Wow, yes!" And he took it to talk to Case Prince. And Case went back and says, "It's got to be bigger than that. You need to go up to eleven foot eleven, just under the registration limit." And so. Josh came back to me and said, what about that? Now, I wasn't too well at the time, but I did all the numbers and everything and said, yes, if you do a straight scale up, it'll work. From 10.9 to 11.11. Yeah, it'll work better than the smaller version will. It loosens it up in all respects, and I wish you'd told me that first. (laughs) So he did that. Case um, did a few little mods to to the design, particularly around the foils and the rudder shape. Who's Case Prince? Um, he does. A, he was associated with the Maritime Centre. Okay, okay. Yep. I don't think I've met him before. And he, then they turned it over to Turnpoint Design, Oh. which digitised it all and turned it into CAD files for cutting, so that's where the kits have come from. Mm-hmm. So there's been a bit of a process in this one. Yeah. But Josh said, I said to Josh, do you want to pay me a royalty or do you want to own the design? This is the fee for owning it. This is the fee for a royalty operation. Well, much to his credit, he took the deep breath and bought the design. Oh, wow. Okay, so I don't get royalties from here on. But, in fact, it's the best possible advertisement I could have. Oh, yeah. So I don't mind that at all. Yeah. Plus it brings me back here. Right. Mm. Right. So he owns the design. Um, when he saw the first one, his reaction was along the lines of, it's nothing like what I expected, but now I've seen it, I couldn't imagine it being any different. Hmm. because it fit the purpose so well. Yeah. And then, of course, they built the prototype, and when a designer, when the first of a new design goes in the water, generally designers would rather be somewhere in outer Brazil, <laughs> you know, with no telephone. Yeah, right. <laughs> but everybody held their breath, and it went in the water, and it sailed absolutely as per advertised. It handled well, does everything right, tremendous stability, good space, and and a lot faster than people expect for such a chubby little bubby. Um, 
we put it up against things like Monty 15s and it just runs rings around them really mm. and not just a little bit it what's really the whole, what's the whole speed on that boat John hull speed if you use Froude's theory should only be about four and a quarter knots uh-huh. but in fact the thing will storm along at about six and a half or seven quite happily really mm. so how does that work how does that happen John? there's a whole lot of reasons behind it but the most pertinent one is when you're pushing water aside the faster and further you have to push it to get it out of the way of the boat as it goes through the more energy you lose Oh. you lose that energy in the form of making waves Okay, so you look at the weight behind and you've got this great big humping stern wave Okay, that's all energy that you've lost Yeah, this boat has got such a low water plane loading that's the pressure it puts on the water Yeah. so take the area of the water it covers and divide it into the weight mm-hmm. gives you the formula it's very light it's, it's water plane pressure is very light mm-hmm. so it doesn't push the water apart very hard it pushes it just a little way and quite gently and it does by going underneath the boat not around it that's the function of that big blunt bow right yeah so the thing planes really so it's it's on a plane at six knots yeah it's one and a half times its hull speed (laughs) you know and we're we're talking they'll get up to ten Oh my! Goodness. They get a bit squirrely after that. Yeah, you need to slow down. Yeah, otherwise you 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 make a mistake and and you live to regret it. You know, you're yeah. going to get wet. And that's a balanced lug rig. It's a balanced lug rig. Yeah, now, a balanced lug rig is not so efficient for the amount of area, but it's extremely efficient for the amount of effort that you have to put into sailing it. Mm-hmm. So we can afford to run a little bit more area because it's a low rig, low aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. And that makes up for the lack of efficiency. So you're talking like the old American cars. The big, the you know, the cubic meters, cubic inches rather, mm-hmm. have got it. You don't have to stress them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you I go see. and buy a Ferrari at about a quarter of the engine displacement, and it produces the same horsepower, but it takes a lot more work to do it. Yeah, I see. So we have a a relatively big low stress rig. You can, it's very low sheet tensions. So you don't need any... um, It's got a three-part main sheet. You only need two. It's only just got enough pull on that main sheet to be able to pull it out when you let the sheet go. Mm. It's that light to sail. Mm -hmm. So the whole rig, it's got a pulley to pull pull the sail up the mast. It's got a pulley to hold it down at the bottom. And it's got a pulley on the far end to be able to pull the sheet in and out. That's it. Wow. So you rig it, you pick the mast up with one hand, plonk it in the socket... Pull the sail up, and you're going. Is that a self-state mast on that boat? Yeah, no stays. Yeah. So, um, what keeps that mast in the boat if that boat were to turtle, John? It's got a little lashing. Does it? Okay. Yeah, yeah that holds in the boat. Yeah. Mm. So, it's a water-ballasted boat? Yes. Okay. Which yeah. is... About 160 pounds of, of water in the tank in the bottom very efficient because you don't have to carry the ballast around with you when you're launching the boat or storing it or you got it yeah and it makes a significant difference when the boat's knocked over and you'll have seen the the writing video i've seen it yes i have seen it yeah and less than a minute from when he finally managed to tip it over 
and he had to try pretty hard. Yeah, right. Yeah, several attempts to tip it before it actually went over on its side. Less than a minute later, the guy's sailing and he didn't have to bail it. Yeah, there's it no water. Didn't pick up much water at all. That's amazing. Mm. Very, very cool design, John. I really, it's a amazing boat. So yeah, if it had come up much quicker when he pulled on the board, would have fallen on top of him. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, there's a balance there, isn't there? I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So that that was part of your all your calculations with all that stuff, right? Mm. Yep. Yeah. And there's two boats previous in the series. Okay. So it's it's based on a couple of the experience of two other boats. Yeah. Now one of the other boats has a mizzen sail that's related. Um, right. Now the first one would have been tender behind, and the second one would have been sherpa. Okay. Okay. Both of which have balanced lug sails. Yeah. Both of which have the same bow and bottom configuration. Oh, they do. Yeah. And okay. Sherpas sail like jets. They really go well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Scamp's quite a bit lighter boat. Um, it's a bigger boat. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bit heavier. It's got a lot more structure in it. Yeah. These other two are very simple open boats that were designed as tenders. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they sail good. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it looks to me like the Scamp's becoming a very popular boat from what I've seen mm-hmm. around this area. And a couple of hundred sets of plans out. Is there... Yeah. Wow. If you get, if you look at the website, um, Josh's website, yeah. he's got a little world map with flags. Oh, right. And they're all over. Yeah. We need to get one in Antarctica. Yeah. That's about the only place there isn't one. Maybe Howard Rice is going to take <clears throat> one up there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's got some planned. He won't talk oh, about he, it, right? He's, he's talked to me about it, and I'm not allowed to say Yeah, it. you probably... Other, other than... Yeah. The, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I admire him, and I'm going to love reading about it, but... You wouldn't do it. Not me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, I really appreciate your time today, John. Uh, it's it's really fascinating to talk to you about what you've done in your lifetime, and it sounds to me like uh, boat designing is a lot of problem-solving and mathematics mm-hmm. and fun stuff, and that's pretty cool. If somebody's interested in your designs and the boats that uh, you can have built, where would they go, John? What's your contact information? www.jwboatdesigns.co.nz Okay. jwboatdesigns.co.nz Okay. Yep. And uh, and you have an email address at that site also? Yep. It's the same. It's jwboatdesigns at xtra.co.nz Okay, very yeah. cool. All right, so people can buy your stuff there. They can buy it there. They can buy it off Duckworks magazine. Oh, Duckworks, too. yeah. Duckworks oh. handles my boat plans. Oh, now, I see. he keeps a full set of originals, and he prints as required. So the uh, time delay to get through the postal system here oh. is much less. So you oh. have your plans maybe three days after you order them. Oh, nice. Whereas if I even airmail them, Priority X New Zealand can be up to two weeks. Okay. And that's Chuck, right? That's Chuck. Yeah, I've talked to Chuck via email a few yeah. times. So. And I, I've stayed with Chuck a couple of times at his home. And in fact, although we live 8,000 miles apart, we've managed to shake hands every second year. Great. Mm. Very so cool. he's been down and stayed at my home. Nice. Mm. Very good. Well, John, anything else you'd like to add to what we've talked about? Well, no, other than that small boat sailing is the most fun you can have with your pants on. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Yeah, it's and it's the growing sport, really. Yeah, right. a lot of kayakers are moving into the small sailing boats. Mm-hmm. You know, the bodies are getting older and a, a little bit stiffer, and you don't want to swing that paddle anymore. Mm-hmm. Think about a small sailing boat. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Very good. And then uh, I was going to ask you, John, do you have any personal boats right now that you use? I do. Um, and in fact, it's not my design. A good friend of mine who was my boss at university bought a really lovely little 18 foot gaff sloop, which is uh, a near replica of an 1860s South Coast English workboat. Uh-huh. Long keel, heavy displacement. Uh, got a little cabin, two bunks. And it's a really sweet little boat. But he found that he couldn't launch it on his own. He couldn't tow it on his own. He couldn't rig it on his own. And it was sailing very badly when he got it, and he didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. So he sold it to me at a price that I absolutely couldn't turn down, plus a commitment from me that I'd take him sailing for two weekends each summer. Oh. So we've both got a good deal, I think. Yeah. Because he's real good company. Cool. And um, so that's what I'm sailing at present. Mm-hmm. and it's just big enough to be comfortable on board and it sails like a little ship rather than a than a, a light yacht mm-hmm. walk around on it and hardly moves it's got 600 pounds of lead hanging down there oh really and an 18 footer oh wow <laughs> but it's not a slug it's not slow yeah. I've raced it a couple of times and it's surprisingly quick yeah so I'm sailing that um, I've got Sunday night special nearly finished I designed a boat for some guys in New Zealand who wanted to go on the Texas 200. Okay. Now, to get their boat from New Zealand to the Texas 200, start off at Corpus Christi, wasn't, that's not possible. So I drew a boat that could be built out of Home Depot materials in the car park of a motel in about four days. Really? So they take the rudder, the centerboard and case, um, a set of frames, and all of these fit and a mountain bike airline carrier bag yeah, and the sail. And they go to Home Depot, hopefully a group of two or three, and they buy all the materials and they find a, a tolerant motel owner and they build their boats, one coat of plastic house paint, they race them in the Texas 200 and they either give them away or they put all the good bits back in the, in the airline carrier bag and have a bonfire. Right. Really? So that, that boat is Saturday night special. That's a disposable boat. Yeah, most most Americans will understand the reference to Saturday night special. Oh, yep. right. Yep. So the boat that I'm building at the moment is called Sunday night special, which is Saturday night special when I thought about it for a bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's coming up. So that's what you're building for yourself? Yeah, it's an experiment. I'll oh. sail it for a season, and then I'll sell it to somebody. Yeah. Yep. And the next one after that, apart from a couple of big projects, will be um, I'm collaborating with Carl Kramer, the publisher at Wooden Boat. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of guys around who, if they were 30 years younger, would sail lasers. Mm. Yeah. But lasers are pretty physical. Four, are those 14 foot? No, 12, twelve foot six foot. or something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and people like you and I, yeah, we're probably a bit past sailing. Yeah. 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 So we're developing a, a boat which will be plywood kitsettable, and it will be suited to around two hundred pounds, hmm. maybe a little more. So fat old people 
can sail it comfortably. It'll be set up so that there is no way you can stack. You can't hang your butt over the side. There will be no toe straps on it, and the shape of it will be such that if you try and hang your butt over the side, you go over. So you sit in the boat or on the seats, which is a lot less physical, and it will carry around 90 square feet of sail, and it'll have quite good performance. It'll plane. Yeah. But it's not going to be so physical. So you've got two teenagers or dad and, dad and one of the kids or dad on his own or whatever. And it'll fit that slot. Oh, cool. Because that's a slot where there isn't much happening. Yeah, right. And we're talking maybe a $1,000 boat. Oh, wow. Yeah, because you can buy the sails off Intensity Sail. The one I'm going to use is a Force 5 sail. Oh, really? You can buy them for $149 plus $14 freight. Oh, my goodness. Where do I sign up? They're made in Thailand, those sales. But yeah. They, they sell them in bulk for $149. There's one on its way to Port Townsend for me to take home. Really? And you go down to the aluminium supplies, aluminium supplies. I'm bilingual. I'm bilingual. <laughs> you go down there and... and there will be a specification in the plans that gives you the pipe sizes and you buy straight aluminum pipe, drawn seam pipe. Right? And you make up a wooden plug for each end and standard fittings come from Chuck Duckworks. That's for your spars. That's all your spars done. And there's something like $120 worth of, of aluminum in the whole spar set. Right? And that'll be a break apart mast and a boom. There's about $300 in blocks and tackle. Mm-hmm. Not very much rope, and a bit of plywood and some glass tape. Wow! Sailing. So when are you gonna? You're working on that project now, getting that yeah, design. Carl and I are, are just bouncing ideas back and forth, and and it's it's starting to take shape. Okay. Mm. Very cool. Wow. And you said that was sloop rig. The, oh, cat rig. Cat rig. Okay. Single sail. Yeah. Yep. No okay. stays. Yeah. So we we. Um, I suggested that we call it the CW12, mm. and he suggested that if we put the, the letters the other way around, it probably wouldn't go down so well. <laughs> C12. <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, very cool. Mm. So well, that's, that's coming up. Yeah, there's all sorts going on. Lots of fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah, when I was a lot younger, I sailed a Sealark 14 which has a hiking straps, and it's for somebody in their 20s, maybe 30s, to go mess around and hike mm-hmm. and all that. But the years after that, I got back, and one, it's like, ooh, this doesn't feel too good on my knees, and yeah. I'm not moving as quite as fast, and that boom's a little bit low for me, and it sounds like uh, you've got just the, the fix for me. Yeah, we're addressing all of those problems. Cool, very good. Yeah, so the idea is if it takes any more than 10 minutes between when you pull up in the car park to when you're sailing, we haven't got it right. Mm-hmm. The yeah. aim is to, is 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Off the trailer, in the water, rigged, going. Very cool. Mm. Good. Well, thanks for your time today, John. I appreciate you being on the podcast and uh, look forward to seeing you next week at the Scamp class. I'm going to swing by there with my son, Josh, and take some pictures and maybe do some more interviews. So uh, best to you and thanks for being on the show. And thank you very much for the opportunity. All right. It's thanks, been John. real fun. Okay. If you didn't know before, now you know what fighting ghosts is. I think a large part of our population does that every day, including myself. So thanks for the time, John. It was a blast to interview you. And um, 
talk about what's going on and I got to see you a few days after that interview actually about five days after and we're going to play that uh, clip next week so thanks again John best to you with your scamp and all the other boats you've designed and built and uh, I will put John's uh, contact information on my website at least his web address and so uh, and so on so check it out Next week, I'll have some interviews from the Scamp Camp in Port Townsend that's going on right now. should be a fun time, so tune in again. If you'd like to support me, you can uh, make purchases from Amazon through my website. I get paid a small commission. Uh, if you go to my resources page and click on any Amazon product there, when you get to Amazon, you can buy anything on their site pretty much anything there and I get paid a small commission. Also on my website homepage is a button for Jamestown Distributors which sells boat building supplies, marine supplies. They've got a great online store, real fair prices, good service. If you click on that button and make a purchase I get paid a little bit there. I've got about 19, I believe 19 now, five-star reviews in iTunes. I would love it if you enjoy the show, if you'd go there and give me a review and some feedback. That would be awesome and increase the popularity of the show. You can also find Hooked on Wooden Boats on Stitcher, Stitcher Radio. And I have a store now where you can buy hats, t-shirts, flip-flops, phone cases, etc. with the Hooked on Wooden Boats new graphic on it, which I think is pretty cool. I've gotten a lot of really good feedback about that. If you go to hookedonwoodenboats.com forward slash store, that'll take you to the site, which is actually through a company called Cafe Press. If you order there, they ship directly to you. I get paid a small commission. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee on all their products. Their service is excellent. Their products are good. And I would love it if you'd order something there. That's about it for this week, all that I can think of right now. And I uh, hope you're getting out on the water this summer. And maybe it's not summer where you live, but maybe you're getting out on the water anyway. Hopefully my canoe will be in the water by the end of the summer, which is, you know, two or three weeks from now. That would be pretty sweet. It's a great time to, it's always a good time to be involved with wooden boats and the art and history and craft of those and building something with your hands and having some tangible benefit, being able to use it. Pretty cool stuff. So get out there and make it happen. So Wooden Boat Dan, over and out. Keep the bright side up and the bar wrinkled side down. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again.